Good morning. <clears throat> Thanks, Ian, for leading us in prayer and to everybody who's served in the service this morning and, well, throughout the year, really. I love our Sunday mornings. It's good to come together. It's good to share together. And um, even though, as Steve said earlier, we're slightly thin on the ground this morning, it is still a privilege um, to, to meet together and to share as a family of believers in the living God. And it's good to share as well with the, the Word of God, and we've been working through this series. We're coming towards the end of it now, but over the summer we've been looking at the Beatitudes, we've been examining them, and hopefully we've been, we've been rediscovering, or maybe discovering for the first time, some of the, the wisdom and the goodness and the truth and the life lessons that are held in those words. And so, today, we come... we come to the, possibly, the most challenging. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, in this beatitude, um, when, this was, when Jesus first said these words, he didn't elaborate. But by the time Jesus ascended back to heaven, by the time he'd been through his life and his death and his resurrection... Anybody who reminded themselves of these words, anybody who went back and examined them again in light of other of Jesus' teachings would have found a significant challenge. There may have been accusations of double standards, hypocrisy, inconsistency. But what we're going to find out today as we work through this passage, as we consider what this means and what the implications are for you and I in this world today, is that actually what we understand from, from this beatitude, what we learn about the subject of peace and what it means to be a peacemaker, through that process, through Jesus' teaching, we begin to understand how Jesus reveals to us his meaning. How sometimes we, we can come up against a brick wall in trying to understand the mind or the heart of God in certain matters. And then over time, God reveals to us in his time. He shows us what is meant. But firstly, let's just focus on this beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peace is... A complicated subject. Peace is something that we all claim to love, and yet the history of mankind suggests otherwise. There has never been a time in recent history, certainly, and probably ancient history as well, when there wasn't conflict happening somewhere, where there wasn't people killing each other, because rather than placing importance on peace, they place importance on winning the dispute, on being the victorious party in the conflict. And there is pain and there is suffering and there is heartache and there is destruction. And it's awful and it's terrible and it's not the way that God wants the world to be. We've seen on the news in recent months, we've seen how the conflict in Ukraine has started because one country, one leader has decided 
rather than pursuing peace, rather than pursuing negotiation, rather than wanting to preserve life, respect life. They've wanted to wage war, to take territory, to take life, to cause suffering. It may seem like an obvious statement, but this is not the way that God intended it. But you see, this is nothing new. We talk about peace, but we find ourselves surrounded by conflict. And it's not just on international scales, is it? It's on personal scales. We ourselves can find ourselves mired in conflict. And sometimes we have to stop and check ourselves and realize that the last thing on our mind is the pursuit of peace. Take, for instance, a young man who had been brought up to love God, brought up to to read the scriptures, to recite the scriptures, to know the scriptures by heart, brought up in a tradition that said that God's law is so sacred that we, we must judge according to that law. Every detail of the lives of the people around us, we must preserve this law. We must make sure that this law is protected, is upheld, even if it costs the suffering of others. That young man we read about in Acts chapter 7. He went by the name of Saul. In Acts chapter 7, towards the end of the chapter, we we looked at this a few weeks ago, we read about a man called Stephen who was preaching the good news of the gospel. He was preaching to, to the Jews in Jerusalem and he riled them, but he stood his ground. He said, no, 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 this is, this, is, this is God's will for us. This is what you need to hear, this message. But it wasn't what they wanted to hear. And so they took him outside of the city gates and stoned him to death. And we're told a tiny detail that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, puts in here. We're told this tiny detail that introduces us to a character which, at this point, the readers of, of, of Acts, if we haven't gone through the rest of the New Testament, have no idea of the significance of this introduction. We're told, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So, the crowd have gone out, they're ready to, to stone this guy, but, but any, any sportsman will tell you that you, you, can't, you can't be wearing a cloak and chucking a rock, it's going to stop your technique, it's going to hamper your style. To get the full power and, and the full movement, you need to take your cloak off. And cloaks were expensive. You didn't want to chuck it anywhere. You laid it in front of someone that you trusted, someone who, who, who knew you, someone you thought, they'll look after it. Saul, he's the same as me. Look after the coats. We'll do the stoning. You ever go next time? Saul was there. And it's important that we're introduced because this, this barbaric, awful, tragic, terrible, disgraceful act takes place. Saul doesn't step in and stop it. He doesn't try to pursue peace. He stands there looking after the coats. Maybe even joining in, we don't know, but certainly not seeking to stop it. 
We then don't hear anything of Saul for another chapter, and until chapter 9, we suddenly get reminded of Saul. And Saul in this time has gone from someone who stands there guarding the coats while the, the others get on with the dirty work to being the one who is leading the dirty work. He is breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So he's not pursuing peace in the name of preserving the law of God and the tradition he was brought up in and everything that he stood for, everything he'd ever been taught, suddenly there was this movement that was threatening it. Saul felt vulnerable. Saul felt threatened. He felt undermined. He felt scared. And so rather than try to to work with, with these people, rather than try to understand them, he wanted to wipe them out. He wanted to destroy them. Peace was not on his agenda. He was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He goes to the high priest and asks him for letters to synagogues in Damascus so that if he finds any believers of the way, the name given to to early Christians, he could imprison them, take them back to Jerusalem. And we've been told he was breathing out murderous threats. He had one intention. It wasn't arrest them with a view to a fair trial, sitting them down and talking this thing through, it was with a view to leading them to the same sort of fate as Stephen had had. And then suddenly he's walking along the road with a band of, of um, colleagues around him. He's the leader of the gang. And as he nears Damascus, suddenly a light falls from heaven. It's so bright that he falls to the ground. It's blinding. He says, he hears a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, in that moment, Jesus could have struck him down. Saul could have been struck by lightning or just by a seizure. He could have had a heart attack there and then. He could have been wiped out and destroyed, but that's not the model that we are set. That is not the God that we worship. Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul recognizes this is something supernatural. This is something I can't, I can't see, I can't do it. I can hear the voice, but there is nothing, there is nothing tangible. He says, Who are you? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The people traveling with Saul, they they heard the voice. They knew there was they knew there was something. They heard the sound. They did not see anyone. They knew there was something supernatural in this. And so Saul stands up and he's blind. He can't he can't move. He can't he can't see anything. And so he's led into the city of Damascus. And meanwhile, God has spoken to one of the followers of the way, Ananias. Ananias has heard about this man, he's heard what Saul is coming to do. There would have been fear in Damascus amongst the followers of the way, the early church. God says, I'm instructing you to go. This man, Saul, the one who who just a few verses before was breathing out murderous threats against people like you, he is coming to this city and he is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So Saul was, this, was a Jew, he was a staunch Jew. He'd been brought up in such, such strict tradition. 
He was, he was adamant that any, anything must be done to preserve the law of God. And he didn't see the irony that, that this God of, God of love and peace, he was seeking to kill people to protect his understanding. But God says, no, this, this is going to be my, this is going to be the person who actually, rather than living the life he's lived so far, protecting and holding everything in and trying to, to, to keep it isolated, this isolated community of believers, he's actually going to go and speak to the Gentiles. The people who he, he, he wouldn't, they're unclean. They're unclean. Well, he's going to go and tell them that they're not. He's going to turn these two conflicting people groups into one. Saul goes to Damascus, Ananias welcomes him. And eventually, after three days, Saul finds the scales fall from his eyes. He gets up, he's baptized. And after a few days, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a miraculous story. But it is also a demonstration of a peacemaker. You see, Jesus takes someone who is, who is so angry, he wants to slaughter followers of Jesus. When Jesus reveals himself to Saul, when Jesus shows who he is, demonstrates his, the reality of his presence and his power, it's such an incredible thing that happens that Saul changes like that. And suddenly he goes from wanting to slaughter the early church, to wanting to grow it. You see, you might be thinking, okay, that's, there are better stories about peace in the Bible. Why have you chosen that one? I'll tell you why I've chosen that one. It's because the story of Saul's conversion is a story which is so important for us to hear. It is so important for us to hear. You see... In our house, um, I have a, a nickname. Not ever so nice, if I'm honest, you know, but it doesn't seem to matter. Uh, I'm the dustbin. If there's food left over, food on its way out, then before it gets put in the actual bin, it gets put in front of me. Because I can't stand waste. I don't like food going to waste. And so, and you know, I always think sell-by dates, they're kind of just a guide, aren't they? Most stuff, you've got a, you've got a little bit of time, you know, and you can, I just think, you know, smell it, taste it. If it's gone, it's gone, but don't just look at the label and accept it. And apparently, that makes me vulgar and, um, you know, I get disapproving shakes of the head. But, but, food does have a sell-by date. Okay, it does get to the point, it's gone too far, yeah? So, <laughs> you see, I kind of, yeah, that's, that's kind of my, my, my approach, I think. Um, I wouldn't necessarily leave milk a month in the fridge, but I certainly wouldn't try it after that long. But, you know, it's, it's kind of, I, I kind of explore my own sell-by dates, but food does have a sell-by date. We don't. Check yourself when you get home, if you want. Tonight, before you go to bed, check yourself. I guarantee you will not find one of these labels anywhere on you because God did not make us with a sell-by date. 
God did not make us with a shelf life. We do not get to a point in life where we have experienced so much conflict and we have failed to pursue peace so many times that God says, right, you're done. I'm giving up on you, moving on to the next project. You've passed your sell-by date. We do not have a best before date. We have a best after date. My best after date, I'm best after. Next time I repent. Next time I come before God and, and, and mourn my sin and, and, and turn and say, I, just, I'm, I'm, I know I'm a fallen individual. I need you in my life, Lord. Please don't give up on me. Forgive me and help me and, and lead me into this better life and, and help me to study your word and be a better student and better person, more like Jesus. I'm best after that experience. And then I'll begin to go off again, but I never reach the point where God takes the lid off and goes, off, cracky, get rid of that, get rid of that, we don't want that anymore. We have a God who does not stamp us with a best before date. I love this, this, this beatitude. You see, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. To be a peacemaker, you have to find yourself in a situation of conflict. You have to find yourself in a situation where peace does not exist. Only then can you make peace. If peace already exists, then hey, you're just a beneficiary of the peace that someone else has brought around. The reality, the stark reality of this beatitude, Jesus is saying, I know There is conflict in the world. I know there will be conflict in the world. I know that this is not a a, a picture of, of the reality that there is peace everywhere. I know. But you, if you want to follow me, you need to be a peacemaker. And the first thing you need to know is that God does not give us a sell by date. Anybody in here, anybody watching online, anybody watching this in in days, weeks, months to come, you need to know this. You do not have a sell-by date. It is never too late in any situation to begin the process of becoming a peacemaker. I know there are families or friendship groups or people groups where conflicts go back generations and and it's terrible. And it seems like a complete mess and you think, I cannot for one minute see how peace will ever be achieved in this situation. But God's bigger than any of those conflicts, any of those turmoils, any of those seemingly insurmountable challenges God is bigger and there are always things that we can do so no matter how much conflict we may have caused or we may be experiencing or we may be just parachuted into the middle of it is never too late to become a peacemaker of course it's easy to say that but there's evidence for this in Scripture, not just Saul. Think of, think of Peter at the end of John 13. Peter is there at the Last Supper saying to Jesus, I'll always be with you. I'll, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, yeah, um, in the next few hours you're going to deny you even know me three times to save your own skin. And Peter's really put out by that. You would be, wouldn't you? But he's even more put out when he hears the cockerel crowing and sees the sun rising and thinks back and realizes that's exactly what he's done. Jesus is crucified on the cross and Peter goes back to what he knew. 
He goes back to being a fisherman. He goes back to the life he had before he met Jesus because he thinks, I've, I've, I've run my course. I've, I've, had the, I've had the test and I've failed. I've failed and I, I'm going back to my fishing because that's what I know and I'm not, I'm not going to preach Jesus because, hey, I've, I'm the one that let him down. I'm the one that failed him. He wouldn't want me. And then he's fishing one day and we read in Scripture that he sees a figure on the shore and he vaguely recognizes the figure and there's that moment where the penny drops and he does the most undignified thing imaginable while the others are desperately trying to turn the boat around and sail. He thinks, blow that, it's just a boat, that's Jesus. He dives overboard, he swims, he makes his way there. He would have come out a soggy mass of, of, of rags and cloaks and beard and everything everywhere. He doesn't care, he wants to get to Jesus because Jesus has said, follow me. I've not given up on you, I've got a job for you. Get out of your boat, come on, follow me. Or, or what about Moses? Moses was brought up a prince. Moses was, he had all the, the trappings of a fine life. And then one day he, he sees, he sees a, um, a slave being ill-treated. He, he murders an Egyptian guard, hides the body. He knows he, he, he's got to flee. He runs into the wilderness. I've thrown it all away. I've thrown it all away. God's not going to speak to me. I've gone from being a leader of people to a, a leader of a small flock of sheep. I've thrown it away. But then one day he's walking through the wilderness and he sees this bush which is burning but it's not being consumed. It looks really odd. He goes closer and he hears the voice of God and they have a conversation and essentially God is saying, Moses, it's time for you to do something. I've got a plan for you. You haven't, you haven't got a sell-by date. You need to do what I'm telling you. This is what I'm going to do. And Moses becomes a great leader of the Israelites because God never gave up on him. Matthew, sitting in a tax booth, despised by so many... I've caught something, sorry. I've never done that before. guitar must have moved <laughs> right there we go um, Matthew sitting there in his tax booth he's, he's, he's despised by so many people he, he's a tax collector he, he, he would have been um, taking taxes he would have been charging a premium on top of that he would have been keeping the poor really poor he would have been raking it in but he didn't have any, any friends he was isolated he was lonely Matthew was someone who looked at his stacks of money and just saw that as the, the cost of loneliness, the cost of isolation. He didn't even bother going to see this new preacher celebrity that's entered town that people have been raving about. He didn't bother. Why? What would he want me for? What would he want me for? Look what I've done. Look who I am. Jesus says, you, leave that, follow me. Why? Matthew did never sell by date. Matthew wasn't past it. He wasn't a lost cause. He was obedient to Jesus. And so you see, whatever conflicts we find ourselves in, whatever mistakes we might have made in life, it is never too late for us to become a peacemaker. And peacemakers will be called children of God. That's what's at stake here. Being obedient to our heavenly Father being called children of God. 
We need to recognize the value of peacemakers in the world. Well, that's all very well. You might be thinking, that's fine. Yeah, that, that, that's great, but um, how? How do we become peacemakers? Well, put together a slide. You see, firstly, we need to recognize that God's will is more important than our will. In other words, we need to become poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, the ability to empty our own, our own opinions, our own ideas and desires, and instead just say, Lord, lead me as to how I can best achieve your will. Then we need to recognize our own fault and repent. In other words, we need to mourn our sin. Adopt a humble heart, become meek. Have a genuine desire for resolution. We should hunger and thirst for righteousness. We shouldn't hold grudges or seek to punish the other party. We should become merciful. We should empathize with the other party and show Christ-like love. We should be pure in heart. You see what's happening here? To become a peacemaker, we need to adopt the Beatitudes. We need to adopt them and recognize what we need to do internally in order for this to become an outwardly effective model of life. In this, in this one beatitude, Jesus is saying, look, if you, take, if you take all the others, if you follow these steps, if you become these things, not only will you receive tremendous blessing and inheritance and everything that your Father God wants to give you, but you will also, you will also be able to become a peacemaker in a world that is full of conflict. And that is such an important role. That is such an important role. You see, Paul, when he's writing to the Philippians, this was Saul who became Paul. There was a name change, something which signified the, the huge change that had taken place. His very identity had changed. And he writes to the Philippians, He's writing from a prison cell. He's writing from a very uncertain place in life. He doesn't know what the future holds. And he says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. Paul accepts that I can't understand this sense of peace. I can't understand the peace of God. It transcends all understanding, but... Rather than, than wrestling with it, rather than examining it, rather than trying to, trying to get my head around it, I'm just, God is the giver of peace. God is the ultimate peacemaker. Sometimes in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a, a dreadful situation, a dreadful conflict, we suddenly realize that while everyone else is, is losing their heads, we feel a sense of calm 
a sense of peace, a sense that only comes from knowing that we're in the presence of the living, loving God. Paul went on in in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, he wrote, talking about Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So these two people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, the unclean, the foreigner, the alien, the ones that we, we, we want to we keep away from, they're all right to be our servants and our slaves, but hey, we, we don't, we, we, they're not going to become, our, they're not gonna become our, our, our worship partners. They're not going to join our temple. Jesus on the cross broke down that barrier. Why? Because peace is what Jesus desires. He put to death their hostility when he was put to death on the cross. You see, Paul, everything that he'd been taught, everything that was in his tradition, everything that he knew was annihilated when he met Jesus. Now, of course, he, you could say, well, he didn't exactly go and pursue peace. He went and preached in synagogues. He was, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was beaten up. He, he didn't exactly have a peaceful life. No, he didn't. But he went and preached the gospel of peace. And sometimes the gospel of peace is offensive to the point that it causes conflict. The message causes conflict because people don't like it. Because we're so attuned to conflicts, we're so attuned to, to opposing each other, to fighting our own corner, rather than seeking a peaceful resolution. Jesus was very clear in this. Let's just take a look at the elephant in the room. Because preaching on peace... There's always this passage which you think, oh, this is a bit awkward. <laughs> oh, Jesus, if you hadn't said that. <laughs> but he did. And he didn't say anything flippantly. He didn't say anything that we can just disregard and, and push under the carpet, or at least we shouldn't. Scripture is Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. And so it's important we acknowledge that Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth, Hang on a second, what about the Beatitudes? You've forgotten what you said. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. A bit awkward, that, isn't it? But no, it's not. It's actually very simple. I've purposefully left off there the next section of this, of this passage. Jesus goes on. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So in other words, Jesus is saying that his teaching is hard. His teaching requires us to recognize that the most important thing in our lives must be our dedication to him. You see, God the Father created us. He loves us. He wants us to know him. He wants to have this intimate, wonderful, close relationship with us. And if we have people around us who we listen to and they, they, they speak against scripture, even if it's our own parents or our own children or our own neighbors or our own friends or it can be anybody, Jesus is saying, be prepared not for a peaceful, easygoing life, but be prepared for conflict. Jesus says, the message I'm bringing, it's not going to please everybody. This is going to be hard. This is going to take time. This is, gonna, this is not going to be a straightforward process. You're not going to go and say to, to people who have never heard of Jesus before, hey, guess what? Jesus loves you. Who? What? Shut up, mate. No, it's the beginning of conflict, isn't it? Immediately, it's an opposition. It's not a popular notion. And Jesus knew that. So he's not saying he has come to split families, but he's saying if I'm truly the center of your life, you must be prepared to follow me above even those in your own family. This is why it's so important that without our children and our young people, they get sound teaching, that they know scripture, that they know Jesus. Because there will be so many voices and influences that surround them so many, so many distractions in life trying to turn their heads. And if they don't know Jesus, then it's going to, be, it's going to get to the point where they're following one path and Jesus is over there and they've, it's a distant memory. He's a fairy tale as far as they're concerned. We've got to keep Jesus front and center of our lives. We've got to make sure that, that, that our, our children know the importance of Jesus, that he should be their first love, their number one the, the center of their existence. So Jesus didn't come into the world to, to cause conflict, but he came with a message of peace which is so countercultural. It was then and it is now so countercultural that he knew that before peace was achieved, before we reached that time that we sung about earlier, where one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to get to that point, there's going to be conflict along the way. Because peace is, peace is not cheap. Cheap peace is saying, hey, do you know what? It's, it's fine. Do what you do. Go where you go. Be who you are. It's fine. God loves you regardless. And um, say the odd prayer every now You'll get to heaven. It's just, you know, it's all one God, really. No, that's universalism. That's nonsense. That is so counter scripture. We cannot go along with that sort of whimsical, empty theology because it's not a theology at all. That cheapens peace. It cheapens everything that Jesus came to stand for. Peace is precious. People have died fighting for peace, countless people. 
if we cheapen it with this universalism that so many people subscribe to because it gives them an easy life. They can claim to be spiritual without actually doing anything or meaning anything. It's empty. It's empty. The Christian faith is not empty. The Christian faith is the most precious thing that we have. It is the gift of God the Father who sent his Son into the world, who loved us so much that he died on the cross for us. And he's now risen, having, having risen from the grave, he's now risen back to be in heaven with the Father and he's left his spirit on earth, the spirit that nourishes us, that fills us, the spirit that cost the Father everything. Let's not cheapen that. Let's not cheapen that. Possibly the strangest statement I've ever said from the front, but I'll say it anyway. I am no chicken psychologist. But I'm going to go with the popular notion on this one, and then if anybody knows better, then please feel free to shoot me down afterwards. I've heard it said many times that when a chick comes out of an egg, the first thing that it latches eyes upon, it kind of sees as a maternal figure. Anyone else heard that? Yeah, okay, we'll go with that. Um, so, when we were first, when mankind was first made in a Garden of Eden, God made Adam. And he looked at what he had made and he was well pleased. And he looked at Eve and the two of them were together and their sole focus was God, the creator. And that was how it was meant to be. We were meant to be, be born and our first love, the, 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 soul, um, the soul motivation of our heart and our soul was to have this, this presence with God in this paradise that he made for us. But as we know, it didn't go like that. Impurity was allowed to come in and God said, I cannot have impurity in my kingdom. I need to protect the purity of heaven because I want you here one day, but, but you've got to go away and, and sort, sort this out. And so suddenly, Adam and Eve are banished and from that point on, every child that is born in the world, they don't see the face of God as soon as they come out, not of the egg, but... As soon as they're born, they don't see the face of God. Instead, they get brought up in a world where they see the face of, face of commercialism, the face of personal desire, the face of ambition, the face of, of many ugly things in the world. And we, as we bring our, our children and our, our families into the world, all the young people that we might come into contact with, we have to kind of filter that and try and protect them and, and keep them focused on the things we want them to focus on, but it's hard. And as they get older, they, they can become more and more distracted and more and more different things going on around them. And, and Jesus, it's so, so hard. But God wanted us. He still wants us. He loves us so much that right there, he wants to be the first thing that we see so that we follow him. Like the chick follows the, the, the hen. That love that the Father feels for us has never changed. It has never been diluted. It's never, ever gone away. That love that he feels for us is just as strong now as it ever was, even right at the dawn of time. It's the reciprocal love that has suffered.
And so we know we're not perfect. If we were, we wouldn't need Jesus, but we do. We are all fallen individuals. But none of us have a sell-by date. None of us get to the point of no return. God never gives up on us. And because we follow him, we are children of God. And that means we've got a job to do. We've got to be the peacemakers in our own relationships, in our own families, in our own workplaces, in our own neighbourhoods, in our own countries maybe. But peace starts in here. Peace starts knowing that whatever we have done in life, no matter how much we struggle to forgive ourselves, no matter how much we struggle not to drag up the past when we're lying there at night and the, there's no other distractions, no matter how much we're haunted by things that have happened before. God loves us. We are children of God. He wants to forgive us. He wants to know us. And then he wants us to go into those situations where there is conflict and become peacemakers. And we can all do that. So my challenge this week is, is quite simple. Go and be a peacemaker. Think before we speak. Be slow to judge, slow to condemn, slow to retaliate, but quick to make, a, make peace in our hearts and then go into the situation as the non-anxious presence, taking the spirit of Jesus and the love that he gives us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, this morning, there will be people here, I'm sure, who are in the midst of conflict or who bear the scars of conflict or who live in fear of conflict. Father, when Jesus said these words, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, this was an unconditional opportunity for us to take on this role. And so, Lord, we pray that as we, as we go into this week, you will just help us in situations that we find ourselves in. Help us when we, are, when we are seeing conflict, when we are in conflict. Lord, help us to remember the Beatitudes, to remember what we've learned about the Beatitudes over the recent weeks, to apply those, those lessons to ourselves, to our own hearts, to prepare ourselves inside, to go and act outside. Father, this week we pray that we will take the peace of Jesus with us wherever we go, not compromising our values, not bending over backwards to accommodate everybody that we meet, but, but standing firm for the values that Jesus taught, but doing it in a way that shows love, that shows grace, that shows mercy, that shows purity, 
that shows a desire for righteousness and that is solely focused on achieving peace. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do. Thank you. Really struck me what Tom has been talking about this morning, and I couldn't help but come up here and say something. Remember way back when the country, the world was at war, and on Christmas Day, the spirit of peaceful God came down to both sides in the battle. They put their guns down and they got into the war zone and started to sing hymns together, the Germans and the Allied forces. The spirit of peace on that one day. What the world needs now is that spirit of peace to come down, not just for one day, but for permanent. Thank you.